Matthew's Gospel, we're looking at chapter 16, and if you get the e-bulletin, the title for this morning's service was uh, something different than what the Lord showed me this morning, so um, we will certainly get to that other title, perhaps another day, I don't know that we'll get to it today, but the, the title of this morning is Doctrine Important. And yes, it is. So we can all go home now. (laughs) Is doctrine important? I want you to think about something. Doctrine is really teaching, isn't it? It's really speaking about teaching. Now, how would you feel if the Ganae nuclear facility there on the lake, how would you feel if they weren't really schooled in how to use that? You know, just with the ability to make, you know, Rochester a a desert wasteland and most of New York and perhaps a good chunk of the United States, isn't it nice that they know what they're doing? And they do that because they have studied, they've been taught, they have learned something. And it's important in any vocation, and I use that extreme um, idea to get across the point that doctrine or teaching is very important. It's very important. Because where would we be? Where would you be in your vocation, in your job, if you weren't taught? And taught well. It's important to be taught well. And when we think of biblical, you know, when we think of the Bible and biblical understanding, doctrine is very important. What we learn from this and who is teaching it to you? Are they rightly dividing the word? Is, the, is all of the word being taught, or is it just a couple of spots of the Bible that are being taught, and that becomes a pet peeve of the pastor? And no pastor should have a, a doctrine that he holds to, and he tries to bring every message into what his pet peeve is, or his beef, or whatever it is. Because we're supposed to be teaching the whole thing, because that's how we learn, and that's how we learn who God is. It's how we learn who we are. It's how we learn this great gulf in between us and God and and the plan of redemption that was put in place through Jesus dying in our place, him being the mediator between God and man. We learn all of that through the Bible. It's teaching. And so teaching is important. And the doctrines that we learn about the Bible and the things of God, those things are important too. Like the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of the rapture, you know, there are many doctrines in the Bible, and if we're taught right, and, and again, there are mysteries in the Bible, even for those who are very schooled, there are mysteries, and they'll continue to be mysteries until we are home with the Lord, and then all the theologians and all the pastors are going to be right before Jesus going, what did you mean in Matthew 16, verse 19? What did that really mean? And he'll probably say something like, well, it was like this. And he just, a couple of, you know, sentences, and it's over. And we're like, really? (laughs) And you'll know when when we get there, it might not be today, but there's a lot we don't know. But there's a lot we do know. And we should know the things that are knowable, right? right? We should learn those things. That's what doctrine is all about, to know God and to know how to apply these things to our life. So doctrine is important. Because doctrine will put you on a trajectory either closer to God or away from God. It will put you on a trajectory that's either going to be synonymous or simpatico with the Bible in the Word of God, or just the opposite. And in the church in America and all over the world, we're seeing this kind of thing happening. And unfortunately, it's the problem of the pastor, usually. Because if he's not rightly dividing the word of God and he's not um, being led by the spirit of God, and I hope that I am, and I believe, you know, God is working. You know what I mean? And so it's important. Because if we don't understand certain things, they do have drastic consequences. They can have drastic consequences. For instance, the blood of Jesus Christ, is it? efficacious for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sin? Yes, because you've been taught. (laughs) Well, through Pastor Jeff, and hopefully as I continue through me as well. But see, there's doctrines in the Bible. That's a huge doctrine. That's a non-negotiable doctrine. 
And we would all agree to that. Or we should. Otherwise, we really can't claim to be a Christian. And we can't claim to believe the Jesus of this Bible. Although people are making Jesus anything they want nowadays. It's like a Baskin-Robbins or it's like a buffet. What kind of Jesus do you want? Do you want a Jesus that conforms to your idea of what marriage is? What your idea of race is? What your idea of anything is? And people hold to these certain things. And God is saying, well, I don't know if you knew that, but I, I got something to say too. Will we listen? Will we hear? Will we learn the doctrine of the Bible? <clears throat> Let's read. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16 when Jesus talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees concerning the signs of the times. And we looked at that in detail how there were signs of the times, even during their day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, when Jesus was walking the earth, there were signs of the times that they should have been listening and watching for, but they weren't. And we talked also about the signs of the times in which we all live. And believe me, there is a, a plethora of signs that are happening all around us. If we're students of the Bible... We're just going to read down through verse 12. Let's, uh, let me read this to you. It says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and they testing him. That's never a good thing to do, to test God. He's the one who tries us, and, um, but he doesn't tempt us. But he's the one who tries us. And when man begins to try God, that's when things get uh, out of hand, and there's plenty of that happening. So then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they tested him, asking him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, when it is evening, could we bring this down just a little bit, just getting a little bit of an artifact up here, just bring it down just a smidge, thanks. He, said, he answered and said to them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Do you think God was more concerned about them understanding the spiritual climate rather than being able to discern the signs of the, of the, of the skies and whether it's going to be rainy tomorrow or not? Yeah, he was more concerned that they understood that, especially because he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the guys who should be knowing about this stuff. But Jesus said, A wicked and generation, wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And notice, he left them and departed. He left them and departed. Now, in Mark's gospel, it tells us when he left, he got into a boat again and departed to the other side. If you remember, Jesus. Uh, left the um. Oop, I gotta. I'm on the wrong slide here. Okay, my fault. Anyway, we're good. <laughs> Jesus left the western shore of the Galilee, and now he's going to be going uh, now back east to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was not inhabited very well. I mean, there wasn't a lot of population there. On the western shore where Capernaum was, where Magdala was, where you know, Gennesaret was, very populous. They had plenty of food. But as soon as you go over and cross over to the eastern side of the shore, there's not a great population over there at all. So making sure you have provisions is pretty essential. And so... Jesus left the western side and went to the eastern side by boat. And it says in verse 5 now, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? 
Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You might want to underline that. Because Jesus is equating this leaven, or, you know, leaven we know is, is, is always a type of sin. He's equating this leaven with their lack of understanding and, and, and their doctrine. Because they were not only not aware of the true things written in the Word of God, but they were also making up their own things. Anybody aware of man, man-made traditions in churches? Some traditions aren't bad, you know. I mean, you know, having a potluck every, you know, every quarter or stuff like that. Those are innocent traditions in a church, you know. But when a church tradition becomes something that is not to be found in the Bible and it's a doctrinal thing, and instead you're doing something else, that's when it becomes a problem. You follow me? And we're going to be looking at some of that today. So let's go back to verse 5 where we're going to pick up today. Notice that he got uh, with his disciples. They come to the other side, meaning to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And again, uh, not very populated. Uh, and this is interesting because after these two miraculous feedings that we've already looked at, looked at they weren't going to, the disciples weren't going to presume that the Lord was just going to do a miracle to feed them. Although we could have. Do you follow me? I mean, they forgot to take bread. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't because they thought to themselves, well, let's not worry about it. Let's just go. Jesus will provide. You know, they, they had a, a concern that they had forgotten. And they didn't presume on Jesus to, you know, do some other miraculous feeding like he had done before. And we need to remember that just because God can doesn't mean that he will. There are always reasons for miracles in the Bible. They have a purpose. So God's ability doesn't negate stewardship and responsibility, does it? And we should never tempt God. What do I mean? (laughs) Well, remember in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus was tempted of of Satan while he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It says this, Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God... Then throw down yourself, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, to Satan, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. We should never put God to the test and do reckless things like, Lord, I'm standing on top of you know, a cliff out in the you know, uh, Letchworth Park, and there's a two or three hundred foot drop here. If you really love me, Lord, I'm going to jump off. And if you really love me, you'll catch me. And the angels, you can't hear them, but they're screaming and going, don't do it, don't do it. But let me suggest to you that if you do jump off the cliff at Letchworth and you have a 200 and 300 foot fall, you're probably going to die. The chances are pretty close to 100% that you're going to die. And when you get to glory... On your way up, you'll receive your dunce cap. <laughs> but they had forgotten to take bread. Again, notice that, that they had forgotten to take bread, not that they did it because they knew Jesus would do something. But then, verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we know this from previous uh, times in the Word of God, that leaven in the Bible is always a type of sin. We know that in Exodus, remember, after the Passover. And I love this picture because, remember back in, in Genesis chapter 12, it talked about the Passover. The Passover lamb was killed first. The Passover lamb was killed first, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately followed, where they would take all the the leaven in the house, the yeast, and those kinds of things, and they would hide them because they were symbolic of sin. Now, I want you to think about that. The order in which 
God had put that feast in the Old Testament. What happened first? The putting away of sin, you know, cleaning myself up, making myself a good boy, and then coming to Christ going, God, I'm, I'm all cleaned up and I'm ready to go. Save me now. But do you notice that's not the order that happened in, 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 in Exodus? The Passover lamb was already was slain first. The provision for forgiveness and salvation was already given. And then as a result of that, then you go and clean up your act. Isn't that profound? That takes legalism right out of the equation, doesn't it? Then it's not about all my good works. Well, I'm good enough. I've done all these good things, God. Look what I've done. I've helped Virginia across the road. I even put away her groceries, and I brought up the car right to her house. Oh, I'm so good. I deserve something, and the Lord's going, yeah, you deserve a spanking. It's not about our works. But notice, leaven. So, so this shall be a day to you of memorial, and, and you shall keep it as a, a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off, literally executed. The type of this is very severe and significant to God. The Passover lamb has been killed, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread happens. But leaven, even in their grain offerings under the Mosaic law, in Leviticus, it says, No grain offering which you shall bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey you shall, uh, excuse me, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. And what about in Corinthians? Paul talking to the Corinthians about someone in the fellowship that was engaged in sexual immorality. That doesn't happen in the church, does it? Sexual immorality? I wish it wasn't, but unfortunately it is. Paul speaking to them, he says, your glorying is not good. This thing is happening right under your nose and you're doing nothing about it. Do you not know that a little leaven, speaking a little sin, leavens the whole lump? All you need is a little bit of yeast, ladies, in your bread. And what does it do? Does it stay by itself and doesn't infect anything? No, the idea behind it is that it infects everything and makes your dough rise so you can have that thick crust pizza, right? It's what it's there for. And that's a type of sin. Matthew, even in his parables, when we were looking at it, a parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. What? A kingdom of heaven? This time in the church age, it's at least including this time that we're together. You mean there's going to be sin in the kingdom of God? Yes. In this time in the church age, and it extends beyond that more even, but it's, it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid three, in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. And, and, and this is what we're seeing today. So leaven is a type of sin. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he said, beware of their doctrine. Doctrine is very important. Because leaven is like yeast. Both do the same thing. It infects and grows. James, remember Jesus' half-brother, wrote this in his letter. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, and this is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He tries you, but he doesn't tempt you. It's very important to understand the difference. The devil will tempt you. God will try you. He will allow you to be examined under a microscope. The purpose is to make you better, is to make you grow. Where Satan's intention to tempt you is to destroy you. Big difference. Two big difference. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he... He himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. Notice the progression there. There is a progression. You have a desire and you're enticed. And then it gives birth to sin. 
And sin, when it's fully mature, it brings forth death. And some people's sins will bring them ultimately to physical death sooner than later. And let me just be honest with you. Heroin and all these other drugs. There's a guy in my street who walks by my road every day in front of my house walking his dog. His name's John. He lost his 21-year-old son to drugs, to heroin. Thought he could handle it. And it ended his life at 21 years old. So sin, <laughs> he had a desire to, to, you know, for some kind of drug, and it just was his cocktail of choice. And then when that desire had conceived, it brought forth sin. And for his case, and many others, it brought forth a very untimely death for this young man. What a horrible tragedy. And it's happening everywhere. And some other people... Their marriages are destroyed because they're playing around with other women or other men. And you're married and little by little your, your relationships start to shrink and they start to evaporate. And the next thing you know you're in a divorce court and then you're severing out and dividing up everything and the whole thing's a mess. There's kids involved. It's a horrible, horrible thing that's happening. And that is a slow death. Sometimes I think it's almost better just to be that guy on, on Letchworth and fall off and in a few moments it's over. But some people last for a long time. And then they finally die unrepentant. And then they spend eternity in hell. Death, eternal death. Does God want that for you? I don't think so. So we can't coddle it. We can't coddle sin. Don't dismiss it as not being a problem because that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were infected with it and they were leading others into it. In Matthew 5, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, leave them alone, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if a blind, lead, and if a blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Jesus in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse, cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside, outside may be... I feel like I'm speaking a different language up here today. I'm going to start breaking out into, um, I don't know, something. It's pretty interesting. I feel like I'm almost breaking out in like, a, in, like in Scottish or something like that, or, or in Irish. Irish, I'm going to bring it out now! So anyway, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may, of them may be also clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which be, indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Their doctrine was leading people away from God. Do you think God was upset with that? And then in verse 7, back in our text, and they reasoned among themselves, the disciples, you know, they're, they're thinking to themselves, is it because we have no bread that Jesus said this to us? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, oh, you have little faith. Little faith, he doesn't say no faith. You know, we don't need great faith, we just need a little faith. And to operate in that little faith, he can do a lot with a little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves or by the 4,000 how many baskets you took up? Now, verses 9 and 10 are wonderful verses that you want to share with critics who believe that the, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, some believe that those were just the same event, but they're clearly very different events. And Jesus says it right here. Let, let the Bible be the, your, your, your safety net. Let the Bible be your commentary. Because a lot of times you can look and find the answers right there, and you don't need to go any further. And it is possible to be too smart and then miss the forest for the trees. You understand? You can get so smart and be a theologian that, and, and this happens, and I've caught myself doing it, and I don't claim to be any one of those, uh, although I, you know, I'm whatever. But, you know, you can get so focused on something, and the answer is right there in the next verse, and you spend hours trying to research something and look into something. You're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and the Lord's going, wake up, Kellogg. 
That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. A very similar thing. So verse 11, how is it you do not understand, Jesus tells his disciples, that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to be, uh, to be, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine. Again, underline that if you haven't already. And um, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At the very least, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was their disobedience, their utter disregard, their twisting of the scriptures. Again, doctrine is important. And and doctrine, according to the dictionary, the New Oxford American Dictionary says it's a belief or set of beliefs held and taught by a church, a political party, or some other group. So the church's stance on biblical doctrine is critical. And a church's compromise on biblical doctrine heads the church or a particular fellowship on a different path or a different trajectory. And that's why we see so many different denominations in the world. We have Catholicism. There's different flavors of Catholicism. And we have you know, Protestantism. And then we have a bunch of Protestant uh, denominations. And a lot of times they'll take a certain verse or take a stance on a certain thing. And it becomes significant enough that they have to break away from everybody else and say, we're going to hold to this. Leave me alone. And that's what happens. You get all these different flavors. There ought to be one flavor. Just read what the Bible says and study it and learn it. Learn the doctrine. I love what Jeremiah says. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Jeremiah says, "Stand." actually the Lord says this, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they, speaking of Israel, said, We will not walk in it. Have you ever met somebody obstinate like that? Perhaps you looked in the mirror and you find yourself to be one of those obstinate people, unwilling to look at yourself and be honest, unwilling to change. Instead, you look in the mirror and go, hey, I'm looking pretty good today. Feeling pretty good, Rob. And the mirror is speaking back to you. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Well, of course you are. You're a handsome devil, you. Emphasis on the word devil, right? (laughs) Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Listen, we don't need new stuff. We just need the old paths. They're well-worn by the brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Don't be looking for new revelation. Oh, I went over to this one church in Toronto and they told me about this thing and it's really great and I felt these goosebumps and there was fire on the platform and three people got consumed. It was awesome. God was moving. And it's like, really? No, stand in the old paths. Know what the Bible says and stand in the old path. There's comfort and security in the solid foundation that we have. And don't let anybody go off on tangents and get all whacked and weird. And people do that. Just read the Bible. Study the Bible. The doctrine of the Bible, you just have to read it. You have to study it. Are you studying the Bible? Or is it just something you're, you know, you're pulling out the daily bread and reading it, you know, and, and that's it. And you throw it in the back of your car and you go to work. Well, you can do that, but you're going to be missing out on a lot. Study the Word of God. It's worth studying. These guys at the Ganae plant, they know all about nuclear power. They're experts. They have to know, because if they make one little move of a knob, it's not right. Everything goes up. How important is it? And that's just temporal. And what we have is eternal. What is more important? I think the eternal is more important. I've got maybe 70, 80, maybe 90 years if I'm really doing well. And some of among us are doing very much better than that. But eternity, folks, do you know your eternity is based on your understanding? I mean, it's based on Christ, but your understanding of this is, that's no big deal. No, it's important. Know what this says. 
Nobody will be able to bamboozle you. No pastor, no television evangelist, nobody on the radio is going to pull the wool over your eyes when you know this. It's either going to register in your heart, you're going to go, yeah, that's right on. Or, oh my goodness, this guy needs to be yanked off the radio or pulled off the television. Send in your faith seed for a thousand dollars. I'll send you a, a hanky that I have. And God's going to bless you this week. He's going to give you tenfold. You're going to have ten thousand dollars before they have. Thus saith God. And there's clowns like that. Please read your Bibles. I'm going to pick on some things today, and you're not going to like it. I'm going to pick on the Protestant church first. Leaven and sin and false doctrine has even crept into the Protestant church. In 1 Corinthians, we, you know, Paul's speaking about this, and I've, I've intimated this before, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, your glorying's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And, and as we have already read that passage, the idea seems to be of sin permeating the church with the goal to infect the whole of it. And the truth of the matter is it's happening. This church and other fellowships used to be filled. People coming to, to church, wanting many didn't know Christ and they wanted to know about God. I remember we used to have two services here back in the 90s. And I'm not blaming any of you. You're here, and thank God, this is not about you. I'm talking about the temperature of the time and the state of the church and the state of not even the church, but even people outside of the church. What is happening? Where, where is everybody? And there are, you know, thank God for these cameras. We learned in COVID that this was a nice thing to do. But, you know, you know, there are people, and if you're home right now and you're watching this, you know, and you're able-bodied and you're able to be here, come. <laughs> you don't need that. But if you're infirm or you can't get out, then praise the Lord that you're watching. But some people are just staying home now and watching all kinds of things on YouTube. They don't even know who these people are. And they're getting fed all this doctrine, and it's affecting them. And not for the good either. Do you know who you're listening to? And what are they saying? And does it add up to the word of God? Or does it not? And do you know? People are falling away. Churches are splitting. Denominations are dividing. Even Calvary Chapel in the last 10 years split from CGN or Calvary Global Network to CCA or Calvary Chapel Association. You know, the CGN is comfortable ordaining women and social drinking and other Calvary chapels, and we are part of the CCA, which, who cares about that? We hold to the Bible, and the Bible says, stay away from that stuff. So we're going to hold to that line, because that's what the Bible says. Do you understand? Doctrine is important. That's why there was a split. And it's not just Calvary Chapel. Remember, God would have, rather have a holy church than a mega church. Numbers mean nothing to God, and I could care less about numbers. I would rather have 50 people who really love Jesus and were on fire for him than 3,000 who came just for the food. The Methodist Church, now I'm getting on the, on the Protestant case now, okay, so bear with me. The Methodist Church, they've split. Some have given over to the LGBTQ plus thing, and others, uh, the other side of that is clinging to their foundational principles. Horrible things. The Methodist Church, now there's many churches having gay pastors and homosexual pastors, men dressing up as women wearing the rainbow flag around them and inviting drag queens to come up and take part in their services. That is, <laughs> it's the most dis disgusting thing to God. Why? Is it because he's a, he's a bigoted God? No, it's sin. That's what, that's what it is. And we need to stop coddling it and calling it, well, they're, they're, everybody, need, yeah, everybody needs love. Hey, listen, there's only one love, and that's God's love. And he defines love. He is love. And when he tells you to stay away from something, you'd better stay away from it. But if you want to continue down this path, you're going to have a problem. 
It's going to bring you to an end of yourself. It's not good. It's not healthy. Our bodies weren't designed for those kinds of things. Do you know the average gay, gay male, the active gay male, his lifespan is about 46 years old? Do you think God has a problem with that? Why? Not only because he designed marriage between a, one man and one woman, but he doesn't want that man to die. Didn't he say in Deuteronomy 30, I've given you life and death. Choose life. And if I'm obedient to God, and he knows he made all the rules, he made physics, he made everything that's keeping us on terra firma here right now. He made all those laws. He knows best. And when he tells me, Rob, don't touch the flame, what am I going to do? I'm going to touch the flame. Children do that. Don't touch the stove, honey. Why not? <laughs> ah! Children. He tells us not to. The Anglican Church recently embraced the LGBTQ agenda. And now there's, I've got articles and videos of all this stuff. And I'm not going to inundate you with all this stuff. You've heard it all and it's, it's grotesque and it's horrible. Doctrine is important. Because if you don't adhere to what the Bible says, you're going to go in every direction possible. It's a shame. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible shame. And can I tell you that God, is, his heart is broken over what's happening in many churches today. And Lord, what are you heartbroken about about our fellowship? You know, that's what I ask him. Is there anything? Is there anything in me that you're heartbroken about? Then change me. Is there anything here that we're doing that we ought to be doing? Is there something that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing? I got ears. Help. Help us to know. Right? Many churches in America, New York, Monroe County, given themselves over to woke ideology. Leaven has propagated through the American church. And the church in America, on the whole, has lost its moorings. It's lost its anchor, with the exception of some. American church is more concerned with being relevant and appeasing the radicals and not upsetting their congregants and the money that they bring in rather than it being holy and true to the word of God. What a complete shame. The American church needs to repent of its sin. And I'm not necessarily pointing the finger at any of you, understand. But as a whole, the American church has lost itself. It would rather give in to all this other stuff and appear to be loving and all-embracing rather than being holy. God would rather have a holy church filled with everyone. All, I, I love our fellowship because we're so diverse. I mean, we got, we got a, you know, a great diversity here of people. God likes diversity in that definition of it because we're all the same. Our skin color may be different. Our, you know, our, where we came from, our ethnicity may be different, but we're all one, right? Are we one or not? We are. And anything that's, not, anything that's keeping you from, from believing that, you need to change your heart and your mind because that's where God is at, not in the stuff that's happening out now. So what does the Bible? Now, I've been harping on the Protestant church and their stance about LGBTQ. Now, soon I'm going to be put in jail for this, and I don't care. I really don't care. Send me to jail. Sorry, honey. <laughs> Maybe I'll get my one phone call. But, you know, but, but listen, this is why doctrine is important, because... What does the Bible say about fornication, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Well, you're going to hear it this morning, because this is what it says. Concerning adultery, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. That includes fornication. Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Wow. Leviticus 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. You know, I just don't think that God's really serious about this, you know? 
No, he's very serious. And let me tell you something. He loves these people. Anybody who says I'm a hater, I'm not. I'm telling you the truth. And I'm going to be on the case of a, a heterosexual fornicator or a homosexual. I'm going to tell them the same thing. Sin is sin. God makes the rules. We don't. And then what about transgenderism? Here's one that's pretty clear. Deuteronomy 22. A woman shall not wear, and this includes a man, by the way, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on woman's, a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Enough said. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writing to them, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Notice, neither fornicators. Notice I'm including heterosexual fornicators. Lest anybody say, well, he's always just bashing the gay people. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm going on both sides of the fence and telling the truth about both sides. What does it say? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, excuse me, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. (laughs) Such were some of us. But you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that. Don't you love that? Now, What about the Roman Catholic Church? Many of you are Roman Catholic in this room. Many of you came out from the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you have members of your family that are in the Roman Catholic Church. But there's leaven and false doctrine there as well. Now, I I didn't go into great detail about the Protestant. There's a lot of stuff, but those are the main things that are in our face right now today. But also, even in Catholicism. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because doctrine is important. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Beware of their doctrine. That's what he was talking about. They were teaching people things that were bringing them away from God. God wants you to be with him. He loves you. He doesn't want you to be separated from him. But he's got to tell us the truth. You've got to tell your kids the things that are... make sense. You've got to tell little Johnny not to ride his big wheel out in the middle of 490. Because if he does... He's not going to live. And God wants you to live. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, regardless of your skin color or ethnicity, it doesn't make a difference. God loves people. And he loves you. But he tells us the truth. He must tell us the truth. That's what love does. Love tells the truth. Are you loving? Are you going to tell people the truth? Are you going to gloss over all this stuff and not mention it? There's a time when you have to speak it. There's a time when you should be quiet. And minister to them in a different way. But there is a time. And be led by the Spirit and you'll know it. But every denomination, whether Catholic or Protestant, should take heed to what it is that they believe and whether it is biblical or not. And this is extremely important because doctrine affects the choices that you make in your life. One gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Lenski wrote this, and I love this because it really summarized what I knew in my heart and he just put it in words. And it sounds pretty eloquent too. Moreover, conduct and doctrine never lie far apart, for doctrine produces conduct and often <clears throat> excuse me, is formulated so as to justify certain conduct. Do you understand what he's saying there? Doctrine affects your conduct, and your conduct is because of what you're learning. What you learn affects you, who you are, and it will impact the way you live and the decisions that you will make. And we will certainly look at the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church on a few things here. But let me tell you, just a disclaimer here really quickly. My intention, please understand, is not to bash those of the Catholic faith. That's not my intention here. As in any denomination, there are those who are sincere and truly born again. And that's true in the Catholic Church, too. I've met some wonderful people. Many of them are really seeking God. Many of them are really seeking, but their leadership is not telling them the truth. And they grew up in this system that they can't get out out of now because their family has been so in it. 
And it's like, if you get out, you're dead to us. So in any denomination, you're going to have those who are really seeking, really loving the Lord, really born again. And then you're also going to have other people who are not. So I'm not bashing them, but I am going to challenge their doctrine. Why? Because doctrine is what? It's important. Let's talk about baptism in the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that a parishioner must be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, not in any other denomination, and this practice occurs at infancy, but there is no biblical foundation or precedence for this. And yet it's forced upon the parishioners. You must be baptized here, otherwise it didn't count. You might not even go to heaven because you weren't baptized in the Catholic Church. There is not a single instance in the Bible where an infant was baptized in Christ in water. Dedicated, yes, but not baptized. Some denominations hold that if you are not baptized in that congregation, you're not going to heaven. Well, is that biblical? It's not biblical. And what did Jesus say? In Mark's gospel, he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice he didn't say, but he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned, meaning the baptism is not the thing that gets it done. It's the belief. It's the understanding and the faith in God alone. It's Christ alone and nothing else. Nothing else. No right. Nothing else. And belief in water whom? Jesus. So faith in Christ is the critical matter, not whether you were baptized or not. The thief on the cross was converted on the cross. He didn't even have an opportunity to be baptized. And what did Jesus tell him? This very day you will be with me in paradise. But wait, Lord, I didn't get baptized. Oh, bring him down. Can you guys bring him down and dip him in the water real quick? Otherwise, he's not going to make it. (laughs) No, he said, this very day you're going to be with me in paradise. What about transubstantiation? Well, that's an awfully long word. We're just humble Calvary Chapel people. Yes, transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic Church believe that during the Mass that they do on Saturdays every week, that the, that the literal bread and wine becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus, and that during the Eucharist, they sacrifice the Son of God afresh every week. Every week, every Saturday after Saturday, they're continually sacrificing Christ, and that's what they believe. And it's another unbiblical doctrine. Well, if it is, then what does the Bible have to say? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins. He doesn't need to be crucified. And, 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 the, and the elements somehow made the real body and blood of Christ by putting it in a box and waving the monstrance over it. I've seen it. I've been in services where that's happening. They put it inside a box. They walk around it seven times or whatever, and they have the monstrance, and, they, they, and it becomes the literal body and blood. And they sacrifice it every, every week. But what does the Bible say? No. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. What does it tell us in Hebrews 9.28? So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. I think it's pretty clear by now that it's once. We don't need to be sad. What is that telling people? Did he die once for our sins? Or do we have to continually go through this sacrificing him on the cross? No, we do not. And that's in their own literature, folks. I've read it. We don't have time to look in John chapter 6, verse 48 through 63, but I would encourage you to look at it. It's a lengthy passage, but it's a really fantastic passage. But what about the perpetual virginity of Mary? What is that? It's a belief, and the Roman Catholic Church believes that with this doctrine that Mary was a perpetual virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. Another unbiblical doctrine. No one will argue that she was a virgin beforehand. But afterwards, she and Joseph continued to have children. No one will argue that before Christ was born that she was a virgin. What did Isaiah 7.14 tell us? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What did it tell us in Luke and in Matthew in the beginning of those two chapters? She was a virgin. They, hadn't, they, they were betrothed, but they hadn't come together as husband and wife yet to consummate the marriage There was no consummation happening yet. 
Not until after Christ was born. But what does it tell us in Matthew and other verses? And I've got it listed. And they said to them, is this not the carpenter's son? They said about Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Jude, Judas? And his sisters, are they, sisters, plural, are they not all here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And do you know that two of these men wrote epistles? James and Judas, who's also called Jude. Remember that little book before Revelation, Jude? It was Jesus' half-brother. Remember the book James that we're always quoting from? That was Jesus' half-brother as well. They grew up with him. They believed that he was God. My brother could look at me and go, if I claim to be God, he... <laughs> Are you kidding me? I remember the horrible things you did. Let me itemize the horrible things that Rob did. And he would tell my mother, and, you know, and so... No, these guys knew. And there's other verses too. Mark 3.31, Mark 6.3, John 7, Acts. What about the veneration or the worship of Mary? The Roman Catholic Church encourages the worship of Mary and puts her on the same level as Jesus, making her co-redeemer, or here's a nice Latin-sounding word for you, co-redemptrix with Christ. You have to go through the mother before you go to the son. Is that true? What does it tell us in Acts 4, verse 2? Peter, before the religious leaders in Jerusalem, said this concerning Jesus, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, but by the name of Mary. Does it say that? No. Christ, Jesus. The last recorded words of Mary in the scripture, they're recorded for us in John chapter 2 at a wedding at Cana. Remember, when they ran out of wine and the mother of Jesus came to Jesus and said, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, and these are her last recorded words. Whatever he says, do it. He's the one. He's the master. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. Mary had to be saved just like anybody else. And Mary will be resurrected just like everybody else at the resurrection. What a wonderful advice from a really wonderful woman. You know, Mary, unfortunately, she gets such a bad reputation because of all the things that are said in her name. And I, I'd imagine in glory she's just going, I wish they would just read the Bible. I wish they would just listen. Why can't they listen? And what about celibacy of priests? The Roman Catholic Church imposes celibacy upon its priests and nuns, even though Peter, whom they claim to be the first pope, which he is not, he had a wife. So if the founder of their religion, of their apostolic succession, which Peter was not the beginning of that, if their founder was married, why are they imposing celibacy on nuns and priests, causing them to commit all kinds of lewd, lascivious acts with minors and, and choir boys and candle holders and all these other young people? Now, that happens in the, in the, in the Protestant church, too. Okay, I just want to be sure of that, all this stuff, nonsense, right? But what does the Bible say about this in Matthew 8, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his mother's wife lying sick. There it is. His mother's wife. Matthew 8, verse 14 and 15. Jesus never imposed celibacy upon the 12 apostles. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any just reason? And uh, let me just go on here uh, at the very bottom of this. Jesus admits in, in verse 12 of of uh, Matthew 19, excuse me, he says, some are not, uh, there are eunuchs who are born from their mother's womb. Something goes wrong genetically where he's still a man, but his parts haven't developed. Something happened genetically. It was a mutation, something. But he still had XY chromosomes. You can take a blood test. He's a male. He's got all the other features, but some things just aren't happening, Right? He said, that's true. That can happen. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, like Daniel and his three comrades when they were taken to cap uh, captivity to Babylon. They were made eunuchs. 
And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sakes. But who is able to accept it? Let him accept it. It's not for everybody, and not everybody's in that place. Do you follow? It's pretty simple. It doesn't happen very much, but when it does, there's still a male. They were just born without certain development. And Hebrews 13, verse 4, the marriage bed. Marriage is honorable among all things, and the bed undefiled. God is into marriage. He created the institution in the garden. He meant for people to have children and be married. Unless you've been given the gift to abstain and you're fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not weird. There's nothing wrong with you. It just means that you're predisposed to a certain thing and God only knows. It could be a gift, one of the greatest gifts of your life. You're free to move about the cabin. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. You're not holding to anybody but Christ. There's something to be said for that too. But not everybody can accept that. Not everybody is like that. Some are burning with passion. Well, what doesn't the Bible tell us? That it's better to marry than to be burning with passion. Get it right. Get married. It's not the only reason you get married, but you know that's certainly a, a problem that people can have. What about the Immaculate Conception? The Roman Catholic Church made this dogma in 1854, which is the belief that Mary was conceived free from original sin, meaning she was, doesn't have a sin nature. But what does the Bible say? Romans says, all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and come short of the glory of God. What does it tell us in Psalm 14? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who are, had any understanding who seek God. And the answer is, they've all turned aside. They've all together become corrupt. There is none good. Who, there's no one who does good. No, not one. That's pretty conclusive. For you and me both, we are sinners by nature. That's why we need to be saved, right? You guys follow me? You with me? Is doctrine important? Because the Bible is refuting all these things that I'm sharing. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So is man essentially good? And then the assumption of Mary... This is the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary ascended into heaven, body and soul. That's a pretty big assumption, pun intended. A big assumption. In fact, Pope Pius XII defined it on November 1st of 1950 in his apostolic constitution called Munificentissimus Deus. He said this, and I quote, We proclaim and define it to be a dogma revealed by God. I highlighted the areas that were words that stuck out to me. I'm like, what? So we proclaim and define it to be a dogma revealed by God, really, that the immaculate, what? Mother of God, Mary, ever virgin, what? When the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up bodily and soul into glory and into heaven. Does the Bible say anything about that? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mention anything about her death or where she was buried. History tells us that she died in Ephesus and was buried there. There's no mention that she ascended into heaven. There's only one who's done that. But like all the rest of the saints, she's going to rise in the, in the resurrection just like everybody else. So how important is doctrine? The doctrine you believe will have an effect on your life. So we looked, I picked on the Protestants first. And I picked on the Catholics. Unfortunately, they're a little easier target on some of these things. Because you just won't find it in the Word of God. And folks, it's time to return to the Bible. Because your life and your actions, your decisions, are due to your belief system. Let me give you an example. If you're a strict Calvinism, and a a strict Calvinist is one who believes God is uh, completely sovereign, man has nothing to do with it. Right? If you believe that, if you hold to that doctrine, and you also believe that you're a, you believe in a post-tribulation rapture, which means that you believe that the church will have to go through the tribulation, and then at the end of the tribulation, God's going to take you up at that point. I don't understand it. But if that's your mindset, what's, what's your mindset? What are you going to be thinking about other people? Well, they're either saved or not. Why should I even witness to them? If, if they're going to be going to heaven or hell, that, nothing I can say is going to change anything. A strict Calvinist will get lazy and think like that. Well, if I talk to them the first time and they don't believe it, ah, they must be damned to hell. Or if somebody else 
you know, a post-tribber, if there's no eminency, if there is no zeal for, you know, they're not going to have any zeal for evangelism if they believe that the church has got to go through the tribulation. There's no zeal, there's no eminency, and the Bible teaches that there are both. There has to be, there is eminency spoken, taught in the Bible. It's eminent. Christ's return for the church is eminent, and that ought to have an effect on me and you and our character, the way we talk to people. Ah, we'll get to it later. You don't have time. Grab as many as you can. Pull them out of the fire. Pull them out of the fire. Tell your family. Yes, they're sick of hearing you talk about it, but guess what? I'd rather my family get sick of me than for them to stand at the judgment seat and say, my your, your son, Lord, Rob, he never told me. Yeah, I've heard about that. And it's, he's, in, he's in glory, but his rewards are few. But you, on the other hand, have no excuse. There's no excuse. And yet Jesus gave us this great commission, didn't he? And we'll stop here. What is the great commission? What's given to us in Matthew 28, verses 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You know what a disciple means? That means if you're making disciples, it precludes the idea that you've already shown them the way of salvation, that they're saved. It presumes that. But you not only tell them, you make them a disciple. And what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who takes somebody under their wing, like a, a, an apprentice and a master. That's what discipleship is. You take them under your wing, you show them. You show them how, it's, how do you practically live. What does the Bible say? Are you teaching me about what the Word of God says? Are you living it before me? Those are the best disciplers. When they're not only speaking to you, but living it. And then you... Being the discipler, make sure there's somebody else in your life that's discipling you. Maybe an older saint in the, in, the, in the church. Maybe they're kicking around in a wheelchair or walking around with a walker, but guess what? They've got a lot of gold to give to you if you're willing to receive it. But usually we're too proud. Do my own thing. It's the 21st century. Things are different. No, they've got practical, even their practical experience is worth something. <laughs> Let alone if they're a Christian, they've learned a lot over the years. They, they may look feeble and all shriveled up like a raisin, but let me tell you something. They've got a lot to offer to you, middle-aged person, to you, young teen. They've got a lot to offer. And if you're older and maybe you resemble that raisin in the wheelchair that I'm talking about, know that you are loved and your value in the body of Christ is tremendous. You are gold. You are the gold. And you are needed. And you are loved. You are essential. But open your mouth and tell us. Teach us. Teach the younger. Teach the middle-aged mom who has her first kid, and you've already been through it. You've raised you know, eight other kids, and now you're on the other side of all of this stuff. You can go to her and say, hey, honey, I understand. Let me watch the kids while you and your husband go out for a date. You need it. You've been spending you know, six months in this room by yourself with this young infant. You need some time. Oh, and I want to tell you a secret that I learned when I was young. After my fifth kid, I learned something. When they're crying and their diaper's been changed and they're fed, don't worry about them crying. They're, they're going to live. They're not going to die. Learned a lot. But is doctrine important? It is. It will change your life. It will put you on the right path. And what did it tell us back in Jeremiah? Seek the old paths and walk in them. Don't look for new stuff. Who cares about the new stuff? I don't want anything new. I want to master the old. And I'm still not anywhere near mastering the old yet. Don't look for the new and the flashy and all that other stuff. Ooh, it tickles you and it's like, ooh. Forget about that stuff. You get right to the, the foundation of it all. Cling to the old paths. Forget about everything else. And learn about 
the Lord. Learn the Bible. And you'll be able to talk to anybody and lead them in the right direction. You'll be able to steer them in the right direction. Does any one of us want to give people bad advice? No, we don't. We want to tell them the truth. What do you think about this? Well, you know, the Bible says that if you, you know, what do you think about me sleeping with my boyfriend? You know, a young girl comes. What do you think about me sleeping with my boyfriend? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Are you willing to listen? No? Okay. See ya. (laughs) When your life's a wreck, you'll come back. But if you want to listen and, 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 and understand what the, what the doctrine, what the Bible says, it's going to save you. It's going to save you. Even if you don't know Christ, it will save you. And let me define what I mean by that. It's going to spare you, maybe is a better word. Even if, there's people, do you know this? There's people who don't even know Christ, but they follow the principles in the Bible, and they're doing well. <laughs> because they're following the, what, what God has said. And they're doing really well. They're doing better than most Christians. But for heaven's sakes, as Christians, let's learn what the Bible says about these things. And our lives will be changed because it will will change you. It's supposed to change you. Will you let it change you? I want it to change me. Before Jeff left this pulpit... I beg God. I'm like, God, you got to do two things in me. Otherwise, I can't do this. I need a great love and a reverence for your word and for you. And I need to love people a lot more than I do. And he's doing it. He's doing it. He's given me an insatiable appetite for his word, and I love it with all my heart. I have no problem spending hours in it. Having a problem with people, though. (laughs) I'm only kidding. (laughs) I'm glad you're laughing. (laughs) Actually, that's the harder part of things. But you know what? I love people. I'm loving them more than I've ever loved them before. God is changing my heart, and he's changing your heart. You know what? Let's stand together, and let's pray that God would just give us a heart to to be like that, to study his word, to know the doctrine, it is so important. Know what your Bible says. And that you can be like the Bereans who Paul admonished, remember in Acts 17.11, he says he admonished the Bereans because when Paul came and talked to them, he was talking all kinds of things to them. But they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Is that true what he's saying? Is there a biblical foundation in it? If so, then we grab a hold of it and we make it our own. But if it's not, then we dismiss it. And you and I need to do that. If it's here, grab it. If it's not, dismiss it. It's really simple. Follow? Love you guys. I am so thankful to be here with you. And I can't tell you how excited I am. Even though this is hard, I know I picked on everybody today. Did I not? I just want to, I want to have a, a, a witness here. I, I picked on the Protestants, didn't I? Yeah. I picked on the Catholics yeah. and everybody else. Yeah. We didn't even get to the cults. Those are even worse. Next week. Yeah, n- not next week. We're moving on. <laughs> well, let's thank God. Thank Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time together. Pray you bless us, encourage us in your word to, uh, this week. And Lord, just keep us, hold us in your hands, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.